The last couple of weeks, we have looked at a particular question that Jesus asked his disciples, in which he said, what were you discussing along the way? What were you all talking about? In which he was addressing the fact that they had wrong beliefs, wrong thoughts about others and themselves, and were arguing about who was the greatest. And so uh, we then last week looked specifically at the book of Titus as uh, chapter 3, and we paired it with that original teaching. And in that text, there were a few general takeaways as far as uh, how we should be aware about how we speak. And uh, in verse 2, it said, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling. Be gentle and show perfect courtesy. In verse 9, it said, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. But back in verse 8, describing uh, the gospel in verse 7, it said that we should insist on these things, that we are bold and unwavering in our proclamation of the good news found only in Jesus, that he is the rescuer, the savior, the Messiah, the only one through whom we can be forgiven for sin. And so today, uh, we're going to look at a whole bunch of, I guess, many topics for us to consider that the scriptures speak clearly of on the matter of how we talk about others, whether it's about ourselves, whether uh, about them or to their face, um, that we are mindful of these things. And uh, for this portion right now, I'm going to focus primarily on what we shouldn't say, what we don't say, what we ought not speak, is what kind of James in chapter 3 alludes to. And so uh, there are uh, some of our issues regarding speech are a matter of filtering what comes out of our mouths, that not everything that comes to mind needs to be uh, exited from our mouths, that wisdom would suggest that we don't need to let everything out. And on matters of not speaking, we should consider our motives, our language, and the content of what we're saying, whether or not it is appropriate. Uh, In Psalm 141, verse 3, the psalmist says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And he's doing this uh, so as not to accrue guilt in what he says, that he wouldn't speak wrongly. And so, similarly, uh, throughout Old and New Testament, there are matters in which we should be careful not to speak. All right, a simple one would just be simply lying. All right, that we should be a people of truth since we are followers of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life that we should speak the truth in love, that we should not, uh, that those who teach should not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of the word of God, 
that we should be a people who speaks truth because the message that we proclaim is of such significance and importance in the world. It is the means, it, uh, the gospel being proclaimed is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and then also to the Greek. And so if we are regularly liars, it will dilute the credibility of the gospel. And so some of these issues become significant because we are representatives to the world, light bearers uh, to the world, right? Representing God and his kingdom, declaring this good news. And our credibility matters. We can, by the way that we live, cause others to revile the word of God. There's, that's the word I was looking for. Uh, it's used twice regarding the way that we conduct ourselves. We could cause others to revile the very words of God. And so lying, right? It's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shall not bear false witness. Uh, that's in a matter of how we speak about our neighbor uh, is one of the things that we should be aware of. Another is uh, complaining or grumbling. All right, complaining is verbal evidence of our lack of faith in God's own goodness or in God's justice or that God loves us. All right, whether we consider the Israelites in the wilderness after God had just miraculously in multiple accounts redeemed his own people from slavery in Egypt and yet immediately they as a culture and community fall into a practice of grumbling and complaining against their God. And that their complaining against Moses is not a rejection of Moses, but a rejection of God. And so we too, as believers, must be careful to not complain, right? To not grumble to not uh, be so focused on worldly things that we uh, diminish the reality of eternity that is ahead of us. Right? That we do not glorify the problems that we face because what we endure now is not worthy to be compared with what is yet to be revealed in us. And so once again, the way we use our language, complaining is an anti-praise of God. Right? We must be mindful of, of how we speak. Another issue is gossip. All right? And this is a matter of how we speak about other people, typically when they're not around. Uh, in 1 Timothy 5.13, New Testament epistle, besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. All right, that we should not be deliverers of bad news about other people in such a way that, right, we celebrate these little morsels that we get to drop and let other people know about that we get to be the first one to bring this news about someone else's stumbling. 
In Proverbs 16, 28, it says, A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. All right, that one of the things that is a gospel issue is that we are reconciling people into God's family when we declare the good news to them. But if we practice gossip, we can rip apart the very community that God wants us to have, that God wants us to build up, right? That even close friends, those relationships can be torn asunder by gossip. Or Proverbs 26, 20, for lack of wood, the fire goes out and there is no, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases, right? That we have the choice Right, just like in considering, you know, back when COVID-19 first was initiated and stay-at-home orders and social distancing and, and mask wearing and all of these pieces, and it was like, hey, if you could remove one, you know, whether it was a barbecue you went to or whatever it was, that was uh, exponentially reducing the spread of the virus. Right, and similarly here, if I choose to not gossip. I am reducing the spread of whether lies about someone, defamation of character, right? Or maybe it's even true, but it's not the thing that needs to be talked about. And so the fire goes out. Uh, another issue when it comes to someone's face is flattery. And these are lies about someone that are positive for the sake of manipulation. All right, uh, so flattery and slander kind of are related to each other. Slander is trying to tear someone down, typically with lies. But flattery is lying to someone or only focusing on their good qualities uh, for the sake of manipulating them, not for the sake of encouragement. It's a demonic encouragement is what flattery is. The practice of flattering is the act of pleasing by artful commendation or compliments, adulation, false, insincere, or excessive praise. And so we can commit flattery uh, to individuals in order to get what we want or in order to be liked, which is still something that we want. Uh, in Jude 1.16, New Testament, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. All right, and so flattery is a way to get what you want. That's what the New Living Translation of that passage says. It says they flatter others to get what they want. And so the purpose of encouragement, godly encouragement, is trying to build someone up, lift someone up, uh, stir them up towards love and good works, where they would be fruitful, uh, where they would be mindful of what God actually says about them and who they actually are, while flattery is merely trying to puff them up for the moment so you can get what you want from them, but you don't actually care about them being built up or them accomplishing what God's called them to do. You care about what you want and you using them to get what you want. Jeremiah 9 verse 8 says, uh, their tongue is a deadly arrow. 
it speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? And right, and so it's a matter of deception uh, and sometimes even destruction of the person that you're flattering. And so uh, we don't want, it's, it fits, it's a subcategory of lying, all right, but it's uh, self-serving lying, which I suppose slander is as well, right? You're diminishing the view of someone else so that you might look better, all right? Flattery is speaking peace to his neighbor, but planning an ambush for him at the same time. And so your words are not trustworthy. Uh, and it's something that God will bring judgment against. Uh, and, and I want to suggest that flattery is a gospel issue. All right, this matters. Uh, in Isaiah 5.20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. All right, that there are those who will alter the truth all right, in committing flattery, in saying that someone's evil practice is actually good. All right, in saying that those who do good, that they're actually the evil ones. All right, that this is a, a demonic practice. And it's dangerous. And it can even sound like a good thing, right? Uh, admiring, you know, the good qualities in a person's life. In Proverbs 24, verse 24, it says, Whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by peoples abhorred by nations. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. Whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. All right, and so the reason that I would say flattery is a gospel issue is that it's easy to try to remove the demands of the law by telling people like, no, 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 you're not a sinner, you're a good person. All right, that it's easy to, to try to desire to avoid persecution by affirming people in their sin. Or recategorizing sin as just being like, hey, we all, we all make mistakes, right? Nobody's perfect, but you're better than Hitler, right? Uh, that, that there's a uh, subjective, comparative morality uh, that we implement rather than a godly standard and morality. It is sometimes better received when scripture is read or offered simply as self-help for those who would choose to listen to it, rather than letting the law be a diagnostic that exposes sin for what it is, the sickness for what it is, right? Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And the reason that this is such a significant issue is that it diminishes our guilt before God, all right, that we can't ignore our own human wickedness as a, as a people, right? That we can't pretend that we aren't rebellious against God. This is a form of flattery. 
And what's incredibly dangerous about this, right? Because it sounds like, well, I don't want to, you know, tell people that they're sinners or, or like even reluctantly acknowledge that, that what they might celebrate or practice is a sin. But it's, it's flattery. And, and in so doing this, people will no longer recognize their need for a savior. As Romans 2 says, they will presume upon the kindness of the Lord, which was meant to lead them to repentance, when in fact they are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. Right? This can be a dangerous gospel issue, this matter of flattery, when we might uh, conveniently ignore the sin, the need for the Savior, so that people will like us better. Right? And it's not even so that they feel better, it's so we feel better. It's flattery in the most basic sense. All right, here's another uh, concept to consider, and I might rearrange these. Uh, this issue of full vent. Right? The psalmist in Psalm 141 said, put a guard over my lips. All right, that there are some things that we simply should not say. But in Proverbs 29.11, it says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. All right, a fool is someone who doesn't recognize that their mouth is like a spigot with a valve, and they just intentionally just leave it open all the time. The New Living Translation puts it this way, fools vent their anger. All right, they give full vent. They are people who will always lose their temper. Right? Their anger controls them rather than them expressing self-control over their anger. Right? Yeah, it's true. A wise person will experience anger, have righteous indignation. They will be angry and sin not. But they will attempt when they have those feelings of anger, right, to gain understanding about the thing they are angry about, to reduce the likelihood of a misunderstanding, right? Maybe they're misrepresenting the situation and getting angry about something that isn't fully reality, right? And that's usually when we put our foot in our mouths, right, because we're all fired up about something that was actually a misunderstanding the whole time, and that's, right, that's embarrassing whenever that happens to us. The International Standard Version says, the fool vents all his feelings, I think is an interesting thing to consider. All right, sharing every opinion isn't necessary, nor is it wise. Right, many times we might initially have thoughts Right? And opinions that aren't fully vetted or formulated, right? That they aren't uh, right, fully justified. They're just like these initial hypotheses that have yet to be tested. But a fool is someone who just, just gives full vent to all of their feelings. Like, they're just feelings, anything they feel, you, you know about it. And right, this, once again, this idea of venting is similar to that uh, spigot analogy. They just leave it fully open. 
A fool lives as though all of their feelings must be worthy of expressing and even acting on. All right, Ephesians 4.29. And this is a, a, a passage that hits several concepts about, about what comes out of our mouths. And Paul is writing this to a church who the majority of would be people who are followers of Jesus. And he says this to them, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. All right, and, and so when writing to believers, he's saying, listen, he, he implies that you have a degree of control that as you mature, right, that to, to control what comes out of your mouth. That you don't need to be a slave to your tongue. And he writes this to a church. That believers, followers of Jesus, can have, should have, control over what comes out of their mouths. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only, and so now he's got like the positive sense, these are the things that pass the filter, only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. All right, so the things that come out of our mouths are good for building up. All right, not flattery, but actual God-gifted, Holy Spirit-led encouragement. Or, or building up in the sense of equipping someone. Okay, and, and I want to point out, Paul is correcting the wrong thinking and practice of believers. And so it's not just a matter of only saying um, maybe what could be categorized as nice things, right? Never talking about things that need to change. No, it's building someone up might at times telling, be telling them, hey, don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouth. All right, the, the things that we speak should be equipping believers, building them up, or, or the, the things that we speak should be bringing people one step closer to Jesus if they don't yet know him. Uh, what comes out of our mouth should be fitting to the occasion. It should be appropriate for the moment, whether it's the audience that's present, right? Whether it's a diminished, uh, a, a reduced subset of the people involved, that it's only those who are affected or worthy of being in the know so that we're not gossiping. All right, or that it's a, a timely word that is appropriate for the moment in response to the, the particular conversation. Right, one thing that I think we all struggle with is that like maybe there's a conversation going on, but then we in our own heads had this own, our own independent conversation, we're not even listening, and then we're, we're suddenly talking about things that are completely unrelated to the occasion. And what we say should give grace to those who hear. 
And so these are things that we aren't trying to filter and cover and asking God to put a guard on our mouths. These are the things that we want to flow freely from our mouths. That our words are grace-giving. Like I said a moment ago, that our words bring people closer to God's grace. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so in the midst of, because he's about to do it again, in the midst of teaching on our talk, uh, that we are, we are warned not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And it's certain that our actions, besides our language, can do so. The things we say... All right, uh, but in this case, he's suggesting that it's that what we say as followers of Jesus could grieve the very Spirit of God who dwells in us. Okay, and this is worth considering a bit on a, on a more macro level, outside of just the, the topic of speaking. That the Christian who has been cleansed by Jesus, who has the Spirit of God living inside of them, does not, by default, please God with their lifestyle. That it is possible to be saved, sealed for the day of redemption, and be grieving the very heart of God. Okay, like that's worth thinking about. That the one who died to spend eternity with us Okay, it's possible that even when we've entered into relationship with him, that we are living in such a way that it breaks his heart over and over and over. And that although we're not saved by our works or our ability to filter our words, that there's Christian conduct that is worthy of what he has done for us, that we should be intentionally doing. It's worth noting that the God who inspires the writing of Scripture does so to correct any apathy towards wrong speech and living. All right, God saved us when we are sinners. God has grace available to us that we can boldly go before his throne of grace in time of need, right? That we have all of these things, that he has made us the righteousness of God in Christ. But God also wants us to become more like him once we were saved, once we are saved. That our practiced righteousness will approach the asymptote of our gifted righteousness. And yeah, I just threw a math term in there, algebra, okay? Uh, An asymptote is when a curve approaches a line and gets closer and closer and closer, but never, never reaches it. Okay, and and our sanctified Christian life on this side of eternity is one that Jesus wants us to to continue to grow and improve in maturity. And even though we might, we're not going to reach perfection in the sense that we often perceive it, but we are intended to mature, all right, that we become closer and closer to that, right, In status, in relationship, we are the righteousness of God in Christ. Gifted righteousness is given to us. But in practice, right, he wants us to continue to grow. 
And so we shouldn't ignore the pleading of the Holy Spirit to put away these things that break his heart. That would be like a spouse who is committing adultery and has no interest in repenting or stopping their behavior. That has no care or compassion for the person that they're hurting. And right, we are the bride of Christ. Jesus loves the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Okay, and so like as the bride of Christ, we shouldn't ignore the times and be apathetic regarding the moments when we break the heart of the one who loves us so much. He wants us to be called out of that apathy and be a people that are his own and zealous for love and good works. All right, back to Ephesians 4, uh, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. All right, so these are things to put away. Let go of bitterness. All right, and, I, and I think, all right, based on the context of these verses, that this is talking about still matters of speech. So we need to let go of bitterness, both in our heart, but also to take care with our speech that our words are not poisoned by pain. That when speaking from a place of bitterness, it is likely that we are, uh, are we, it isn't likely that we rightly perceive reality in those moments. Our world sometimes gets knocked off kilter by our own pain or suffering. And when we hurt, we can easily hurt other people, and we often do so with our words. It doesn't change the fact that we were hurt, or we're still struggling, or we're still, you know, trying to wrestle through God's goodness in a season, but we must be careful how we speak, or that we don't speak quickly and hurt. Maybe at times the very people who love us, who are trying to help us and, and serve us and care for us and comfort us, when we're hurting. What's interesting is, uh, right in the book of Job, I imagine he had to work very hard in the midst of his pain to watch his words. And at least early on in his struggle, in the first two chapters, it says that in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. When all of these things that seemed unjust happened to him. Or in Job uh, chapter 2, verse 10, when speaking of like, hey, God's been good to me, and in these moments it seems like this is bad stuff just happening. Shouldn't I receive one like I do the other? And the, the author of the book says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And so he certainly, throughout the book, struggles through the trauma of his tragedy, he is questioning whether or not it was just, 
And he ends up even demanding an appeal before God. But I want to point out, in the midst of his pain, at least early on, he didn't sin with his lips. He didn't allow bitterness to take full control over what he said. Even when his own wife was saying, curse God and die, right? Like just, just you know, no longer praise this God who you serve. Curse him and just die because that's better than living on with what you've experienced. Ephesians once again says, throw out anger, wrath, and clamor, and, and malice. And right, and we can use our words to make a point, to make a lot of noise, but we are to put away harsh words because we can destroy others with our words very easily. We can demolish children and spouses and relationships. We can harm the very people we love. And fortunately, we can also use our words to repent and to apologize and to do the work of restoration. Right? We can acknowledge that we were wrong. We can express a heart that has turned from sin. Right, and seek to invite them back. And lastly, in this passage, it says that we should put away slander. And slander is a false tale or report maliciously uttered, intending to injure the reputation of another. All right, it's defamatory. It's uh, tales or suggestions to injure someone else's reputation, right? And we, as believers, must avoid slander. Proverbs 10.18 says, The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. And so I always love Proverbs when it, instead of merely putting something in the category of sin, it puts it in the category of foolishness. Because I know that in our flesh, we are much more comfortable with doing something that's morally wrong than we are being considered a fool. James 3 says this, With it, that is our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of of God. And so when it comes to matters of slander and tearing down someone else's reputation, uh, you know, the scriptures, the Holy Spirit puts it in the category of an attack on someone who's made in the image of God. And so it, it almost puts it in the category of, of like Jesus did with murder uh, in, <laughs> in attacking someone who's representing God in a particular way. Another thing to consider about slander, as far as whether it's a gospel issue, is it can focus on uh, the sins or failures of others while not recognizing our own or the past that Jesus has rescued us from. Uh, that it is uh, potentially uh, a hypocrisy, right? Where we're, we're, whether truthfully pointing out someone else is wrong or defaming them falsely, 
uh, we're, we're focusing on their sin rather than our own sin. Uh, and instead of glorifying God with our words, we're using our words to tear people down. Uh, in Colossians, Paul's letter to the church in Colossae is very, uh, has similar moments as to when he writes the church in Ephesus. And he says this in Colossians 3, 8, and 10, uh, saying many of the same things, but just slightly different words. But now you must put them all away. That is anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And so here he includes another category, which is obscene talk or corrupting talk. Okay, and so uh, this is when um, we're not necessarily, you know, misrepresenting someone or lying to someone, but the content of our words is uh, beneath that of a child of God. Okay, uh, Proverbs 4.24 says, Put away from you all crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Or the NIV for that says, keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Or Ephesians 5, 4, and so here's another New Testament example when it comes to the content of what we say. It says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. All right, and so I, for one, believe, right, God's got a sense of humor and that's something that he placed in us. But in the life of a believer, there's a way in which it can be done uh, that is just, right, crass, crude, filthy. Uh, and that's not something that the Holy Spirit wants to see practiced in the life of a believer. And so I don't think there's too much more clarity that I can bring to that particular issue than the Holy Spirit already does. Uh, verse 9 in Colossians it says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self and its practices. And so once again, like it's, uh, the Bible is right, recognizing it's writing to Christians here. You've already walked away from your old life. And just because you're forgiven doesn't mean you should keep living that way. Right? You need to cease lying to one another as well. As well. Uh, in verse 10, and then in the positive, it says, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so Paul uses this language of literally like taking off your old life like a garment and putting on a new life that's found in Christ. And he says that this new life is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so one of the things, as I, I think I've actually the last few sermons kind of alluded to as far as the work of God sanctifying us, of making us more like him, is this idea that it's something that we learn, something that we must be careful to do, something that we, uh, through practice, uh, become more like him. Uh, that we are not passive recipients of these things. And he actually links part of our becoming more like Jesus to our being renewed in knowledge. And so our being made more and more aware of the truth when it comes to what the scriptures say about matters of our lives that are sinful or unfruitful or things that God calls and commands us to do and operate in, uh, it's something that we 
we grow in, in knowledge. All right? Like if we are never allowing the scriptures to hit our hearts, then we won't become more like Jesus. There's no such thing as uh, living, becoming more and more sanctified apart from the Word of God. Right? Like I read from that passage, Ephesians 5, about Jesus purifying for himself his bride. Part of how that's done is through the washing of the water of the Word. And so part of the life of the believer is, is having our minds renewed to think about us and God and this world and this life and eternity and sin and godliness the way that God does. And the way we do that is by exposing our hearts and our minds to the truth and allowing the Holy Spirit to correct us where we are wrong right, and to make us more like him. And what I like here is it says that uh, our, our goal, our end goal, is to be made in the image of our creator. And, and so the Bible here is linking the relationship between uh, sanctification and somehow being made in the image of God but different than the default human status that we all have, that we'd studied last uh, topic, which was, you know, how valuable is a man? Uh, when we talked about that, right, someone is made in the image of God, that all humanity in its origin, that we are different than the rest of creation, the rest of all creatures, that we are made in the likeness of our Father. But when it comes to sanctification, this is suggesting that we can somehow become more like our Father, different than our image status from the Garden of Eden, different than being like God, the false offer and deception of the serpent, the enemy in the garden, when he says, right, if you eat of it, you'll be made like God, knowing both good and evil. All right, different than those things, but it is to, to live godly lives, to be holy as our Father in heaven is holy, to represent him not just in the message that we proclaim, but also in our speech and in our conduct, that yes, all people are made in the image of God. But God wants you to be more like him, to be Christ-like, little Christs, Christians, okay? To be godly, to take on his nature, his characteristics, to be bearing fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that's done through being renewed in knowledge after his image.